Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. In this podcast, we celebrate our students and staff, hit on a few topical issues as well, and shine a light on the amazing work going on in the university. It's LGBT History Month, and to celebrate that and to reflect as well, I'm joined by three members of our staff to have a chat. They are Dr. Nick McGlynn, Senior Lecturer in Human Geography, Sarah Pickett, Co-Chair of the LGBT Plus Staff Network, and Sam Oliver, Team Administrator for the Disability and Dyslexia Team. Thank you for joining me. We'll start with the, the month itself. What are your thoughts on, on how important it is to have this period dedicated to LGBT history? I think it is really important. Um, I mean, I think it always is in any year, but um, maybe more so this year, um, because I guess it's it's obviously tough on a lot of us at the moment. Um, but I think particularly for, for LGBT um, plus people, yeah, it's um, it's quite difficult to to sort of connect with um, the community, and and maybe people are kind of yeah more more isolated and sort of um, yeah, I think. I think there's kind of a real need to to make people feel connected and, and also aware of uh you know aware of lgbt history and and um yeah and hopefully kind of celebrate that as, as well as recognizing you know the challenges and and you know i guess the 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 places we still have to go um you know it's uh i think it's for me anyway personally i'm kind of like really wanting to <laughs> engage with a bit of fun and a bit of like you know a sense of uh, joy and creativity and those sort of aspects so um yeah that's i think there's a lot of reasons why we need to to be celebrating and and you know recognizing it yeah i mean i th i agree with what sam was saying really i mean i suppose it's great to look at stuff that's happened maybe for younger people as well to kind of be aware of stuff that's happened before and where um, some of the movements that are happening now I mean I, for instance I remember there's a lot of um, struggles still around trans issues and trans awareness and I remember even in the 80s having to have those fights with the um, women's centre about whether trans women should be allowed and stuff like that so I think looking back at history can give you kind of ideas about where a lot of this stuff comes from um and um yeah i think it's just good to have that space to highlight stuff to raise awareness to look at how things have changed and how and as sam said how things um still need to change yeah i, I agree with sarah i think um i i'm sorry to give the the standard lecturers academics answer to this but i think it's a really useful learning opportunity um i think thinking about it as lgbt history month uh, and thinking about that historical aspect is really important because uh, our movements do have uh, very long histories, um, very uh, interesting histories. Uh, lots of the, I say the points out, lots of the kind of like debates and issues that seem really kind of like fresh and new and appearing out of nowhere today are actually very long standing. Um, and I think it's really, it was really important when I was younger, when I was. Uh, like understanding myself as gay, um, a really important thing for me was to read 
what older um, LGBT people had said um, and to understand myself as kind of positions within that kind of history. That was really helpful to me and I think it's something that I still would recommend to any younger LGBT people is think about it as LGBT History Month. Uh, read that history and kind of learn where this has come from and that can give us some kind of signposts for, for where we might be going as well. Yeah, and, and, I, and I wonder as well um, how much you think it cuts through to, to wider society and how much it really should do as well beyond the LGBT plus community because how important is that that, you know, they can, that everyone can get involved with these events because like you said, without, we, we can't really go forward without really knowing where we've been and that, that applies to, to everyone. Yeah, definitely. And um, as I said, it's, it's, it's a long history. It's a complex history. It doesn't just happen in one country. It's happened across the world. And sometimes, it, well, very often, but until the past uh, 15 years or so, it wouldn't have been described as LGBT history. It might in some places and sometimes not even be described as a lesbian and gay history. So it might be quite difficult to, to uh, understand where this stuff has been happening and where it's come from. But that's, that's what makes it um, so interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I think in terms of kind of learning about that history beyond just kind of LGBT people, um, I, I think it is really important. I think it's uh, important to see where LGBT movements have fit in to other movements, activist movements, social movements, even political movements in the past. Uh, and to understand LGBT issues as kind of like woven throughout society rather than being kind of like packaged off somewhere. Yeah, so I mean, if we talk generally about progress in terms of equality, clearly things have changed over the years. It's such recent history where the most archaic and disgraceful laws were in place, which you can't even imagine the impact of. In, in recent years, and we'll stick to England here because it gets a bit more complicated when we start looking into the UK as a, as a whole. Um, but same-sex marriage has come into law in, you know, past decades. Primary school kids learn about LGBT plus now. Where are we lacking, though? Where do you really think we need to be making more progress? I, I mean, I think there are still challenges in education. You know, it was only 2019 when... Um, 21 MPs actually still voted against LGBT inclusive education in prime, in in school in schools you know so we're definitely and and with the rise of academy schools who um, although they have to teach the curriculum there are things that they can leave out and not teach and stuff like that um, and you know I, I think with education we've got a long way to come still you know although it is better obviously I agree with you Sarah and I'd I think one thing that I know happened, I think it was last year, was that a load of funding got cut for um, LGBT uh, kind of, well, charities that um, that basically helped tackle LGBT bullying. Uh, so that was, yeah, quite a big step back on that front. And I think as well, you know, just I suppose I have a bit of a kind of health and social care or mental health kind of, um, I've worked in mental health quite a while before, so I'm quite focused on things like the NHS and kind of service provision and I think in a lot of those areas we have kind of you know we still have a lot of surveys showing that um, both kind of staff and service users feel um, you know who are LGBT feel essentially that they're not getting the same treatment that they're not getting kind of um, 
services that really meet their specific needs. Um, and yeah, I think in a lot of ways we still have a need for sort of LGBT plus specific services because mainstream services are not are not doing what they should. Um, so, you know, for example, in Brighton, we've got Mind Out, which is an amazing LGBT plus mental health charity. And, you know, I think we need more services like that around the country because um, I think we're quite lucky down here, but, you know, elsewhere it's, pretty patchy yeah i mean that that really um that really kind of jibes with my experience my um my phd thesis actually um which i, I completed about five years ago um was about exactly these kinds of issues what it was like for lgbt uh, community groups services charities as well as the public sector to be trying to promote lgbt rights to trying to provide lgbt focused services at the same time as their funding had been devastated and it was incredibly difficult and we're still seeing the after effects of that uh, happening right now. So I think that that is a really serious issue and um, it's, it's something that comes up in my research all the time. I, I work with MindOut and other services um, is that most LGBT people do want LGBT specific services because not just because of issues of fierce discrimination, but because there are some LGBT specific issues that they might be dealt with. Um, I also think it's obviously the case that um, for bi people, for trans people, uh, for asexual people and others, um, there's a lot more needed in terms of support and uh, sometimes even just recognition uh, across the country's social life. Um, at, at the same time, like I'm, uh, I'm very influenced by queer scholars and academics and activists who've pointed out that a lot of like lesbian and gay, in, it, I, and I say that very specifically, lesbian and gay in, inclusion success stories have been about establishing ways for us to fit into existing social norms and lifestyles. And I think there's been less understand, there's been less kind of challenge to the kind of mainstream ways in which our social lives are lived. Um, so I, 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 I'm certainly obviously very happy that there's been a lot of progress in terms of including LGBT people, but I'm always a bit mindful about what are we being included in and is there stuff that we are being included in that could actually do with being shaken up in some ways. I'm interested, Sam, a point that you made that you felt that there were more some you know good services in, in, in Brighton, but maybe elsewhere it's um, lacking a little bit and sort of following on from that really Brighton's an area which is incredibly inclusive in lots of ways. Do you feel like it can sometimes be a little bit of a bubble? Have you ever had a situation where you feel so comfortable in your surroundings around in and around Brighton and Hove that you can go somewhere else and, and you feel a bit of an outsider somewhere else, not really that far away, just down the road? I think Brighton can feel a bit of a bubble. I think sometimes, certainly when I come from the northeast, and when I go up there, I do notice a difference in some ways. Um, but I also think we can kind of get—I wouldn't say fooled, but we can get sometimes maybe get too comfortable. You know, you've only got to look at the fact that two gay men were attacked and beaten up on the seafront. I think it was a year or so ago. Um, in terms of being safe, it's not. And I don't think anywhere is totally safe for LGBT people. And I think um, it would be dangerous to think Brighton is, you know, all, always wonderful because it isn't. However, yeah, it is, you know, there are a lot more here. There's a lot more here for LGBT people than there is, you know, on the estate that I was brought up on in the Northeast. So, yeah, there are differences. But um, 
and that's why I've stayed in Brighton probably for so long. I moved here in 81. Uh, so, but, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't want us to get too complacent. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree with that, Sarah. And, you know, I think I, Brighton's probably the place that I felt the most at home and I've kind of moved in, around quite a few places in the UK and I'm from London originally, which, you know, is also fairly pretty kind of, uh, diverse tolerant place in a lot of ways but I think the thing with Brighton that I find is that there's there's kind of more warmth down here for me I sort of feel there's there's kind of yeah just a different sort of atmosphere but at the same time I've experienced sort of uh, being stereotyped and kind of direct sort of homophobia down here thankfully nothing kind of very violent but um, but certainly things that made me feel quite uncomfortable and quite sort of um, yeah sort of stigmatized um so you know it's you know i think i've had conversations with people where they've been like oh but bright you know anything goes in brighton and everyone's you know it's all great isn't it it's one big like lgbt paradise and i'm like no <laughs> no definitely not um yeah you know there's there's still plenty of issues um it's just i think it's i think you know it's safer than a lot of other places but there's still there's still a lot of problems yeah, that's that's definitely how I feel as well. Um, I was brought up near to Glasgow, a bit further north than Glasgow, um, and quickly after I moved to Brighton, like it, it felt like the the most comfortable place for me um, as a gay man, um, and I I think. I think sometimes it can be easy to forget that it really does feel different different here, really different. So look, when I go, when I visit my boyfriend in Belfast or when I travel up back up to Scotland um, or, or even, to, even to London, anywhere else, um, I suddenly think, oh yeah, this, this does feel a bit different to Brighton actually. Um, I'm not sure what it is. Maybe there's just a kind of atmosphere or there's a kind of a, just a, a generalized feeling of greater safety and comfort in Brighton. But at the same time, as, as both Sarah and Sam have mentioned, I, I've experienced random homophobic abuse in the street here, avid folks shouting at things at me from cars. Um, so it, it does still happen here. It's not a utopia by any means, um, but it probably is still one of the best places in the country. And if you're comparing that a little bit, <laughs> as well nick to to belfast interesting you saying that with your boyfriend being in, in belfast where the situation is um uh a lot more complicated um in northern ireland republic of ireland and and you know we know the issues there as well how does he feel about the situation when then where, where he lives um uh, uh, i mean I, I can't really kind of speak for him too much um i, I will say that uh, I um, have been to Belfast to do a bit of field work on LGBT communities there, and I, I not know at the time, not knowing much about kind of uh, Northern Ireland's not Northern Ireland's kind of um, situation and context with kind of LGBT rights and stuff. I, I was kind of struck by how different it felt and how a lot of the people that I spoke to said they said to me rightly, "You've got to understand, it's not the same here as it is in England." Um, and that they, they, the people that I spoke to there said, we do feel it's far more blatantly homophobic here than it is in other places in the UK. That's not to say that there is not a large LGBT community in Belfast, there is. And there's a lot of really fantastic, really innovative LGBT um, activism and campaigning happening around Belfast. Um, 
but I, I do think that kind of points to, as a human geographer, that there are kind of like spatial differences and variations in kind of LGBT acceptance and inclusion across the UK. And hmm. um, what about the university in general? Inclusivity, a core value for the uni. Students speak quite positively about it feeling, again, I guess, similarly to what we we're just saying, a, a safer space than maybe some people may have come from, from other, all other areas of the country or areas of the world, in fact. Um, what have been your experiences with what they've told you? What, what were your experiences of the university in general about how it supports um, people who are coming to the university who may be like, finding out a lot more about themselves? I've not actually worked at the university for too long, um, but I was, uh, I was in the team I'm in um, a few years ago, kind of for, for sort of temp period. And um, yeah, I think, you know, so my experiences are quite general, but overall I, I do feel the university seems like a, a pretty inclusive, you know, welcoming kind of space. Again, relatively speaking, you know, I think there's, yeah, there's always things that could be improved, but um, yeah, it's, you know, I, I think just speaking for myself as a member of staff, like I've um, I probably felt the most kind of accepted and welcomed very quickly in, in the team I'm in um, compared to anywhere else I've been. So, and um, I don't know how much of that is like specifically as someone who identifies as queer, but like it's, it's just been my experience here. So I think it's, and I, I've been a, very able to just talk about yeah kind of boyfriend or you know whatever whatever my experience is um so yeah that's been that's been really nice for me um yeah uh, i've so I, i've been at the university um in, in a bunch of different capacities i've had a bunch of different jobs here and i did my phd and my postdoc here as well so i've been both student and a variety of different types of staff here um and i have always felt not just safe but also very supported and even encouraged to be open about uh, being gay here and to teach about LGBTQ issues in my class, which is what I specialise in, is kind of LGBTQ geographies. Um, so I, I'm really pleased, and so some of the stuff that I teach about is probably quite um, pushes at the boundaries of what people might think is acceptable. Um, in terms of, um, we, we talk about um, sex, we talk about sexual practices and sexual cultures, and I have all, we use some kind of like sexualized imagery in my classes, but I've always felt that the university has my back on that kind of stuff. And that they know that I'm, I'm engaging with these issues from an academic perspective and an educational perspective. And as I said, that the university has my back. Um, and also with regard to the university more widely, I mean, it's, it's so easy for LGBTQ equalities to become a bit of a tick box exercise at universities, like, oh, we'll get our rainbow flags up this month, uh, we'll use the hashtag in our social media, make sure everyone's done their mandatory equalities training online. But at the University of Brighton, I really do feel that there is a culture of supporting LGBTQ people here that's kind of baked into the university um, and also in trying to improve how we do that um, and I don't say that kind of thing lightly um, and I think it also just helps that there are a lot of us working here. Yeah I mean for me it's slightly different I don't work for the university my day job is I work for the student union in a student union office front-facing so a lot of my work is just dealing with students chatting to students so it really isn't. I mean, I've worked here for 23 years, I hate to say, um, for the student union. But so, 
you know you love you love students. to say you love to say Sarah yeah yeah sorry I love to say it. I just mean it's a long time but but yeah um the students for them it's kind of not an issue but they're a brilliant thing so when we introduced um pronoun badges you know certainly at Grand Prix the where I work the badges just went within like two seconds I kept having to ask for more because students were really keen to help to wear them uh, you know but it's always I mean I was out as bi from the second I started work here and I, I've never ex personally not experienced anything you know any problems um, and I think it is a very inclusive space but I'm always working in student union areas so you know obviously that's slightly different um, but no I think Nick's right I think it is a very accepting and encouraging and you know which isn't to say that there's not any problems you know I certainly have noticed um, with a, a colleague who's now not with us at the university a trans colleague I kind of notice the odd kind of odd looks microaggressions and stuff like that sometimes when I walked around with them but actually as a general thing I think the university is a pretty safe space and it is very inclusive and um, encouraging and as Nick said there's, there's a large amount of LGBT staff so you know that's always a plus. Yeah and following on from that really I've touched upon it in the, in the previous, quest, previous question as well but related specifically to students who as I said that you know learning so much about themselves they may be leaving home for the first time so they're really gaining true independence um, where they can really start to become who they really feel like they want to be who they are um, so for anyone who may be feeling anxious about ex accepting who they are or feeling anxious about people accepting who they are and about telling the people that are closest to them about about themselves I'm always wary about giving any advice to anyone because I think, uh, you know, yeah, everyone's process of, of self-acceptance and sort of telling people about who they are is, is so different. Um, I think the one thing that I would really say, you know, based on my own experience is um, like find your community, find your sort of chosen family and people that do really, um, you know, accept you and, and encourage you without conditions and without kind of any expectations on that. Because um, I think a lot of, if you can find that somewhere, then even if you then face, you know, challenges and difficulties with responses down the road, you've kind of got that base and, and you can kind of develop quite a lot of security and yeah, in your relationships, but also in, in yourself. And um, yeah, that's definitely something that I found very strengthening along the way. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with Sam's points there. Like, I'm um, far be it for me to kind of be giving kind of this easy advice about here's what you should do. But Sam's absolutely right. Like, don't think that you have to follow um, other people's trajectories that they've gone down for this kind of thing. Um, do what you think works for you. Um, and also, um, yeah, I, I completely agree about finding a kind of a community, which is, is so important to find these kind of like minded people. Unfortunately, you, you probably will find that in Brighton. <laughs> yeah, I think you've both said it all. Oh, it is very difficult to give advice because everybody's experience is so difficult, is so different. You know, I didn't even admit to myself um, that I was buying until I was 28. So, you know, I'm not necessarily the best person to be giving advice, but definitely finding, finding your community and people who are like-minded, I think, is one of the major things. Yeah, I think it's I mean, probably phrased that maybe not quite the right way in terms of it being direct advice, more, maybe more anecdotal experiences may often feel 
beneficial to someone else they, it may strike home with you know one two people that may, may be listening to this i guess is the, more the point i guess but w- what about allyship uh, i think sarah you might be a good person to talk about this maybe how useful is something like that i i guess really we we kind of want to get to a point don't we where an allyship is completely pointless in that does it almost feel like needing to have allies kind of shows that we're nowhere near where we where we want to be yeah i mean you're right i mean it would be great if we didn't need that i mean sorry i find it's always a difficult question to answer because it's really hard for me to see it from an ally point of view if you're not and I'll hurt, you know, if you're not that person, I think, you know, I think there are various things somebody who's an ally can do, you know, asking educated questions and doing your own research on stuff to find out about stuff. Um, speaking up, obviously, for underrepresented, if, if it's appropriate, um, following the lead of LGBT colleagues. Um, as, you know, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable was one of the phrases I, I thought was interesting when I was looking into this. But, you know, you might well be challenged or things might be challenged and recognise that, you know, in that sense, there's privilege, recognising your privilege and using it for good. I completely agree with what you said, Sarah. Um, so for me, like, I'm, I'm not interested in whether somebody calls themselves an ally or not. Um, and I actually think kind of like debating low or what does an ally mean um, what does it mean to identify as an ally I just think that's a big distraction those are not interesting or useful questions but I think if you want to support LGBTQ people um, read and listen to what LGBTQ people have said um, including in the past thinking about LGBT history month uh, recognize that we do not all think the same thing by any means Um, make your judgments and act accordingly it's about it's about the actions the identity is meaningless it's about the actions Um, and just try to be kind and open and generous as we all should be with everybody Um, I mean I, I think about that a lot in terms of myself as somebody who tries to support anti-racist work and as Sarah's kind of pointed out I know that there are lots of times when when I try to support anti-racist work that I'm gonna fuck up and that I am gonna do something really stupid um, and I'm gonna feel really I'll be made to feel really uncomfortable um, and I think it's about digging into that and not shying away from that and thinking um not kind of like running away from these things because they do get quite challenging and uncomfortable to us personally i think that's really important and to focus on the action over the kind of identity of allyship yeah i just want to second that point really nick that um you know i think the main thing that i thought about here was just sort of yeah walk the walk don't just talk the talk and i think you know kind of words are you know words are great for a lot of things but yeah in this kind of context it's it's really important about yeah what are you what are you doing um you know if you say you support kind of lgbt plus people sort of yeah how how is that actually happening you know in, in reality i think they're really good points yeah, um, Nick, i think sorry, you put that on, a lot more eloquently than me <laughs> i also think you know a lot of people do a lot of online activism and i think taking your activism your online activism using it in real life scenarios as well is important but yeah um i think being open and kind is the kind of the best way of putting it really and just which you should be in about everybody and all different types of people so i think that's brilliant and back to lgbt history month in general it gives us an opportunity to look how far 
we've come over the years. Um, how much further do you think we need to go? We, we've seen only this month about how soldiers, for example, who were sacked because they were gay, are only just getting their medals back. And those sort of stories really do kind of shine a light on how ridiculous those situations were all those years ago. I guess thinking about how much further we have to go, I get picking up on something Sarah mentioned earlier, you know, I think there's in, in the UK at the moment, there's so much, um, oh, there's so much kind of tension and debate and kind of issues around um, trans rights and kind of trans, um, yeah, just trans people's lives. And, um, and I think that, yeah, there's, there's so much further to go around those conversations and, and just, yeah, just kind of ensuring that, that people's rights to, to just live their lives and exist aren't kind of just constantly questioned because that just, you know, seems to be, yeah, with kind of all, all the recent kind of um, legal aspects and, and all of this stuff in the media and, and these kind of, you know, it's just so polarised and um, I just, you know, it, I just feel very sad about it because it sort of feels like, you know, there's, there's so much... Um, adversarial stuff when there really doesn't need to be so um you know i think i think on that on that part of the uh, the lgbt acronym we have the furthest to go arguably you only have to look at the fact that all of the stuff around the gender recognition recognition act you know that's been paused by the tories and i think you know for me that's certainly in my role at the university and also in my I'm involved in my local labor party as LGBT officer and stuff that I've noticed that trans issues are the ones that are um, in the forefront and the ones that I'm having to um, post positive stuff about a lot to try and kind of change the language around that. Um, in terms of the soldiers, you know, um, I think, it, yeah, you know, looking at what's been written about that, people are saying that's a great first step, but there's much further to go. You know, there's, some of them have criminal records, they've lost pension rights, they've got stuff on their service records. So, you know, there's in that and in a lot of other things, there's so much further we can go, so much more we can do. Mm. I think Nick as well, I mean, just talking to a Scotsman here as well, the issues that are going on in the Scottish government at the moment, in the SNP about trans rights and um there's been a lot of talk about that and how they need to sort that out and they need to sort sort out transphobia as well within their own party. It kind of shows again, you know, it's just being brought to light at a very high profile level that it showcases how much, how much further we need to go. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I do understand that, that those issues are primarily right now around trans people. But I think as a lot of trans people themselves have pointed out, is that lurking behind a lot of this stuff, are people gunning for lesbians, for gay men, for bisexual people as well? And that this, uh, this kind of like spate of transphobia that's exploded across the UK um, is, is not gonna, it will not end with trans people. Um, and one of, in a research project I did a couple of years ago, um, there was a, a gay activist who described the kind of uh, advances that have been made in LGBT rights 
as uh, people like spinning plates. We've got all these plates kind of spinning in the air and he said it will just take one thing for all those plates to come crashing down. There's this kind of assumption that we've progressed to this certain point and that that is all now set in stone. And But things could go back for lesbians, for gay men, for bisexuals and others very quickly. It is not just trans people in the firing line here. They might just be the ones that are under attack the most right now. I think that's a really good point, actually, Nick. And I think thinking back, being an out bisexual in the 80s um, and the, the late 80s and the early 90s. And at the time I was at Sussex University being involved in their gay sort. There was we were having debates about, for instance, bisexual men. Should they be allowed into the into meetings? It was it a safe space for everybody, you know, which are similar arguments to the sort of arguments we're having now around trans women in bathrooms and stuff. So I think I think you're right. It's all an attack i think it's all an attack on the whole community um it's just you know at presently it's trans people that are that are at the forefront of it but i'm sure that behind it is that kind of agenda that um anti that homophobic anti lgbt agenda moving on how much do you think popular culture plays in in changing perceptions of those who live outside of the lgbt plus community so two examples here really we all know that It's a Sin has been uh, a huge success. Brilliant show, heartbreaking. I think there's still a lot of myths still around HIV. It's an issue which still needs tackling among the LGBT plus community as well, um, in terms of more people getting tested, but outside of that as well, more people getting tested. But just watching that and understanding of the virus and how testing has changed over time, how far have we come there? How positive are shows like that? I mean, and you know, clearly there are parallels with bringing this out at a time during a pandemic when people can relate to understanding a virus which is completely new. Like cultural representations and kind of growing familiarity with LGBTQ people have had a massive positive impact, N not just for non-LGBTQ people. I mean, for me, one of my formative experiences growing up was watching like Russell T Davies' earlier show, Queer as Folk, in the kind of mid to late 90s. Um, and as a young, recently out to himself uh, gay man, I think it was probably like 15 or 16 then. That was watching that on TV was the first time that I ever saw gay men as being presented as cool, as being anything but kind of um, these sad, pathetic characters who would eventually die. It was the first time that I saw gay men having fun, and I thought maybe my life won't be terrible after all. So I, I, for, I think for younger LGBTQ people, that's probably a really significant thing. Um, I have to say, I've not watched it since. Um, not because um, I think the subject matter will be too kind of harrowing, but because I don't want to watch people going out and having fun at the moment when, when we can't do it. Um, but I, I've no doubt that that's going to be really important um, for, for LGBTQ as well as non-LGBTQ people. The flip side of that is that um, a lot of kind of popular cultural, cultural representations of LGBTQ people tend to either be these kind of like nice unchallenging oh they're just like us only a wee bit different kind of figures or it kind of presents the more kind of like challenging aspects of our lives like promiscuity drug taking public sex that kind of stuff as these kind of exotic and entertaining kind of things which can lead to us being uh, like fetishized and objectified so there is a balance to be struck there certainly but 
on the whole, I think these popular representations have, have been a big bonus. I think It's a Sin is great. Um, also Pose, I'd say, has been the programme that really made a big impact on me around, um, yeah, you know, not obviously kind of, kind of representations of uh, the kind of HIV, uh, yeah, everything that was going on in the 80s, but yeah, also the ballroom scene. And um, yeah, I think, I think that, you know, represent, I think they're really great in terms of representation and it's, it can, you know, I really um, relate to what you were saying, Nick, about seeing Queer as Folk as well. You know, that was a very formative uh, experience for me, kind of sneaking out to watch it at like sort of 11 at night when I was meant to be in bed. Um, but I think in terms of the whole thing about them shifting the dial, you know, among the wider community and on a social level, I think that can be overstated a little bit. And I sort of feel like maybe that might have been more the case when there were things like, I think there was sort of Brookside or certain things in big soaps where there was sort of millions and millions of people watching the same thing at the same time. But I feel like that's different now in the current sort of TV kind of cultural landscape. Um, so I sort of feel like a lot of people that are watching these shows are probably already kind of a bit, you know, pro-LGBT and then kind of, you know, fairly open to you know, people from different backgrounds. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's great for representation, but I don't think it's you know I think it plays a part in 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 moving things forwards. But um, yeah, I think there's probably actually more important things on a ground level in communities that need to happen that that we should be focusing on. Yeah, I agree. Actually, I don't think I agree about pose. I found that incredibly interesting, and you know, particularly when you look at some of the black life, black trans life matters. Um, protests and stuff and knowing a lot of again it's a history it'll be history thing is it knowing a lot of the history of where a lot of that came from I mean, a lot of people now watch things like RuPaul's Drag Race and stuff like that but knowing where that came from I found incredibly interesting but as you say I agree that it's possibly a little bit overstated about the impact that something like that can have. I think Pose is a really great example to bring up there actually because I think probably one of the things that made things like Queer as Folk and It's and Pose kind of really successful representations is that they were done by the people that it was about. It Pose is, um, has black trans women involved in making it and Queer as Folk and It's has gay bi and queer men involved in making it. And um, I, I think that's really important and it lends uh, a gravitas and an authenticity to it that you, you can't get otherwise personal interest of mine because it's something that I've covered quite a lot as a journalist um, is um, the issue of sport and especially men's sport which is way behind feels like it's way behind the rest of society um, pretty dark age stuff I think there are no out men's footballers like in the world at, at a top level <laughs> which is statistically crazy isn't it? it it it's really bad and it, it seems that comes out of a fear of, a, of abuse which actually we have been seeing over the last month in terms of racial abuse online of footballers recently so which, which isn't going to help anything clearly um but it seems like it comes out of fear of abuse that you know what actually would be a very small minority is stopping sports people to be openly gay and there's huge work to do there, isn't there? And it really strikes me a lot of the time when I'm covering this, that it just feels a long way behind so many other areas of society. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. 
Yeah, so I'm not going to lie, sport, not, not, not my remit, um, but um, I, I know that there are definitely um, gay buying queer men, at least, uh, who have uh, tried to work on greater kind of LGBTQ uh, inclusion in, uh, in men's football. Um, and I, I think I, I've read kind of lots of stuff that kind of says things like, oh, you know, like homophobia is massively in decline in football now. And that's a, that's a thing of the past. And, but and I, I actually had a student write about this uh, for uh, an assessment they did recently, which they, they had to kind of like base on their own experiences. And he, he said in his essay much more eloquently than I'm about to. Um, he said, look, I go to lots of football games and there is casual homophobia everywhere. Um, it's it's not kind of like hyper abusive or anything, but it's the casual nature of it that seems to be just kind of trickling away everywhere unnoticed. And I think that kind of casual unnoticed stuff can have a really big impact. It doesn't have to be kind of like super violent, aggressive abuse. It's this kind of like little culture that's kind of away in the background that you can almost just kind of like pass you by if you're not on the watch out for it, which which LGBTQ people are. Just hearing a word can make you think, God, this, this is not the place for me. Um, so I, I think it's, it's clear that there is a lot of work that needs to be done there, but I, I think LGBTQ groups are kind of like forming to kind of lead the way on that and to, to push clubs uh, on inclusion. I think a lot of clubs have been doing some quite explicit stuff hmm. to promote LGBT inclusion recently. Yeah, clubs do do it. Uh, uh, th- clubs and sporting organizations are doing a lot more for it you talk about the stuff that sort of bubbles away in the background i can tell you as a as a brighton supporter when you go to an away game it's pretty explicit and that's just a stereotype and that and but but it it, it, it and it's seen as something funny by a small member a small group of fans and then more people might end up singing along to it and it's just madness I think that's true. And it's interesting about Brighton because, again, I've got friends and relatives in Brighton and Brighton supporters, and they, rightly or wrongly, what they do when those chants happen is they, they just chant back, you know, when they get chanted, is your boyfriend with you or something, or whatever it is they chant, they chant back, you know, um, you know, we wouldn't be interested in you or something like that. You know, you're, they you're make too, a joke. You're too ugly it to is, be gay is the, is the one that seems yeah, to Yeah, all that sort of stuff, yes. yeah. Um, but then, you know, I think it's interesting that it's in high levels of football. Anybody who knows anything locally about White Hawk FC um, and their chants, they do a load of positive. Just look at White Hawk FC on, on YouTube. They do positive chants about gay, being gay and all sorts of things. And anti-racist, anti-homophobia chants, um, the little local team. But um, so you've got people like Tom Daly, who's a swimmer. And it was OK for him to come out. Gareth Thomas. I mean, I think he maybe came out after he stopped playing yeah. so much rugby but um for, there have been footballers who've come out once they've retired but yes it's it's interesting to me that it's football particularly um and i think that's maybe something about the culture of football and the chance and stuff like that makes it more difficult i just think you know it's great that some clubs are starting to take it seriously and doing something about it and as nick said lgbt groups are putting pressure on in order to do that I think as well it's it's not only football I mean I'm also not a massive sports fan generally but I do follow tennis and um, I think I'm aware that there is um, I think there's actually a kind of a lesbian couple in tennis that I'm aware of that both sort of play um, professionally but other than that like yeah there's on the kind of both the men's and the women's uh, game there's very you know I can't really think of 
you know many lgbt people at all that are out so um yeah you know i think there's there's still a lot of progress to be made there too and i'm just aware at the moment as well that the australian open is currently on and um one of the courts that that tournament is named after a famously quite um sort of mm. you know a, a tennis player who held quite a lot of uh you know quite uh negative views about lgbt people so you know that that's also something that i think uh you know needs to be needs to be challenged and questioned and, and more pressure put to, to sort of uh you know to make changes there because mm. um yeah again still plenty of progress to make yeah and there is a lot there are a lot of court um a lot of calls to change the margaret court arena to be called something else there are there, there, it, it does it, it does need to be more acceptable in women's cricket in general but um moving on from that and i want to finish by well two two things really firstly uh, i want you all to pick one inspirational story from lgbt history that really resonates with you so this is different from a question i'm going to ask in a minute for a role model from history so um, i'm going to go through all of you just tell me what it is and and why it means something to you so who would like to go first I think for me, it's this is a story from LGBT history, but it's also a story from my history, um, which is the fight to repeal Section 28 in Scotland, um, which came a few years before this, the similar fight in England. But I was in my final year in what, what in England would be called my sixth form um, at that time. And there was a huge... Um, there was a huge and very, very homophobic um, campaign against repealing that. Sorry, I, I should explain what, what Section 28 is, because I'm sure a lot of people don't know. Section 28 uh, was a piece of legislation uh, implemented uh, under the Conservative government in the 1980s, which forbid the teaching um, of... Um, Homo, I think the exact words were homosexuality as a pretended family relationship in schools. The, the wider effect of that was that LGBTQ issues did not get discussed in schools and um, there was a even if it was uh, I think never really kind of prosecuted there was a, a culture of fear created and so LGBTQ issues were never discussed in schools uh, because of this piece of legislation and I grew up knowing that uh, I knew that some of my teachers were gay but it was always shut down any discussion about that the other teachers would shut that down because they knew the problems that could emerge um, and then the debate to um, repeal that in Scotland happened uh, in my final year in uh, high school. And I remember uh, as somebody who was newly out to myself, and I don't think I was out to any of my friends or schoolmates or classmates or anything. Um, I, I, yeah, I'd be very surprised if I was. Um, that, that, that had a huge effect to me to see LGBT people um, like campaigning for this positive step which would have had such a massive impact on my life at school that was really empowering for me to see to see oh my god there's people who are going to fight for this there's people like me who are going to do something about people in my situation that had a huge impact on me um so that, that I, and the fact that that campaign was ultimately successful uh, is what makes it like a super inspirational story for me yeah um Unfortunately, I'm going to use the same example because um, I was actually involved in Brighton in the Section 28 campaign and one of the people who was helping organise stuff like the first march um, and it was a massive, um, personally it was, but more politically I think it was really interesting because it brought together a very disparate group of people, all different types of people 
um, all different groups of people who hadn't worked together before and it was brilliant you know there were trade unionists there were radical feminist groups there were groups of gay men there was um, all, or just other political parties all different types of people all involved in the same campaign and I, I got involved through my then trade union um, because I was I was um, in the TGWU at the time I think I was 28 or something but it was an amazing campaign and it was um, it was inspirational and, and you know it's how I ended up coming out because I kind of realized stuff about myself by being involved in that campaign and I just think it was uh, and it was done in such a different time you know we didn't have social media we had to do phone trees and leaflets and um and and direct you know actions on the street just turning up at places and doing things so yeah that that for me was an inspirational campaign um and i think and as nick said it was eventually successful as well so sorry to be that do the same thing but that was my the my kind of most memorable campaign Um, okay, I'm going to do something completely different now, <laughs> which is, um, yeah, and I guess this is kind of more cultural history and it's quite something that's quite personal to me um, and also much more in the present, which is um, basically over the uh, pandemic there, uh, since kind of we've been in lockdowns, there have been this really amazing online queer clubbing kind of um, events that have sprung up. Um, one of them in Canada called Club Quarantine, I think, but the other, the one that I've been to more is called Queer House Party. And I guess, you know, I don't know if like, we'll look on, back on like these things as sort of an important part of LGBT history, but for me, they're a really important part of kind of my current kind of, you know, sense of, of being connected to the community and, and, and just sort of celebrating who we are and, and the creativity involved. And um, I mean, I think really, probably one of the most positives about Queer House Party is that it's not just about, right, let's just get on Zoom and dance around and kind of be really um, silly, which is, you know, uh, which is a big plus for me, but it's also that they're very political and they're very much about um, sort of raising awareness of uh, like LGBT refugees and issues there. Um, they're promoting a lot of things around kind of sex, sex workers uh, who have kind of, yeah, sex workers from lots of different backgrounds um and yeah and also just you know the, the the kind of inequality that um that obviously a lot of that's facing a lot of the country but also yeah a lot of kind of lgbt plus people um kind of living in poverty and, and kind of really struggling in the current time so um yeah i think it's you know they're, they're really bringing such a a great mix of fun but also you know kind of yeah it kind of raising awareness of important issues so uh yeah for me that's that's been yeah just a really really lovely thing to be to be part of um and i think it will yeah it will kind of um be making a big difference to a lot of people through through the history that we're living through right now yeah great stuff um and then finally i'm going to ask you all to pick from lgbt history i want you all to pick a, a role model and explain why they mean something to you so i think we'll go around in the same order again so nick do you want to start uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm sorry to kind of give an academic's answer to this again, uh, but I'm going to pick another academic um, who people may well may well have never heard of before. Uh, but I think my role model would be uh, Professor David Halperin, um, who is an American academic. He is probably one of the world's leading authorities on gay men's identities and cultures. Um, I think he's a, a real role model of mine for a number of reasons. I, I met him a couple of years ago. 
um, and found him for an extremely senior academic, incredibly kind, incredibly generous to younger scholars. Um, and then in terms of his actual work, um, he has done so much in fleshing out, exploring and explaining the history of men desiring other men across millennia. Um, he, he's done stuff right back to um, ancient Greece and Rome. And um, I, I think the kind of approach he takes is one that's not afraid to rock the boat when it comes to discussing uh, the kind of less squeaky clean elements of gay men's cultures. And that includes also some of the parts of, um, of gay men's cultures that people think are a bit, a bit naff or dated now. Um, things like um, the opera and the, the theatre and uh, particular old camp films and stuff. Um, and he's done a lot of work around that, which I, I think is really important not to kind of ditch that stuff as being passe and uncool now. So I think in, from a, an LGBT History Month perspective and also from a kind of a personal supporting perspective, he's definitely a massive role model of mine. This was the question I found most difficult um, because it isn't something I really think about. Um, is it me? <laughs> yes, it is. Thinking back to, and I'm particularly trying to think maybe about people who may be bisexual who are role models as well. Um, and the, the person that, that brought to mind when I was thinking about things that inspired me was um, actually a music, was Skin from Skunk and Nancy, who um, is an amazing bi black woman who is a very powerful, you know, um, leader of a band and just a really amazing person all around. Um, I found out recently she actually did a degree at Teesside Uni, which makes me like her even more. She did an interior design degree at Teesside Uni, where I come from. But um, yeah, just to see a sort of a woman, you know, unconventional shaved head out there front in a rock band, I found really inspirational. Um, and um, she still carries on being you know an inspirational person so i'm you know don't know a huge amount about her but she was somebody that i remember seeing and thinking wow she's absolutely amazing and isn't it great to see people like that you know on the Incidentally, first, first live gig that i ever went to with skunk and Nancy, um absolutely incredible and yeah she was so kind of open about um her love for women she got she said at the end of it i want all the lesbians to come up on stage um it was an incredible experience so yeah that's amazing I think skin is, is incredible as well. Um, for me, actually, do you know what? I was going to go with someone else, but I've just changed my mind. Um, yeah, that there, there is quite a difficult one because I think I'm inspired in kind of, yeah, culture generally by, by a lot of um, different LGBT people. But yeah, um, someone that I, I really uh, love is Janelle Monet, um, who's, yeah, this, um, yeah, just this queer kind of singer, actor, you know, she's one of those people that wears like a million different hats, but um, yeah, but also just, uh, I think kind of is really, you know, unique, you know, I think, um, you know, I think she was uh, kind of working with Prince kind of shortly before he died and he sort of almost saw her as like a kindred, kindred spirit in terms of someone who just totally does their own thing. And um, yeah, and I think she, you know, I guess I've been saying earlier today about like, you know, just wanting to find like joy and creativity and that sort of thing. And like the last album she released was all about kind of living, living your, you know, kind of authentic life and sort of almost doing that despite all of the the bombs falling, you know, the metaphorical bombs falling around you, I guess. So, um, yeah, she's someone I find, find really inspiring and, um, yeah, I'm just kind of in awe of how, you know, talented and, and sort of um, 
yeah, again, authentic she is in, in everything she does. Great answers. Look, all of you, thank you so much for your time. It's been great having you on. We could have chatted for so much longer about all different kinds of topics, I'm sure. But thank you so much for giving up your time to talk to us uh, for this episode. If you want to find out any more information about some of the support that the university provides, please go to the website, brighton.ac.uk. Share this if you can on social media as well. Thanks for listening.